Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is Science for People Who Give a Shit. Folks, there's a lot going on out there. Our world is changing every single day. I talk to the smartest, most impactful people on the planet to provide you with the inspiration and tools you need to feel better and to fight for a better future for everyone. Our guests are scientists, doctors, nurses, journalists, engineers, farmers, politicians, activists, educators, business leaders, astronauts, even a reverend. If you want to be inspired, if you want to feel better and help change the world, hit the subscribe button now to get more conversations like this one, because we have some truly amazing folks coming down the pipe. And go to podcast.importantnotimportant.com or just scroll through your feed to find your 120-plus conversations about climate change and cancer, clean energy, the oceans, food and water, artificial intelligence, and more. Some quick housekeeping if you're new here. You can send questions, thoughts, and feedback to us on Twitter at importantnotimp, or you can just email me at questions at importantnotimportant.com. You can join tens of thousands of other super smart folks, and you can sub- subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at newsletter.importantnotimportant.com. It's the most important science news of the week, plus some analysis and action steps to get you on your way. Third, our job board is hot. If you want to work in climate finance or infectious disease or biotech or agriculture, you can go find a job there. Uh, if you work for a company or an organization already doing that kind of work, go to importantjobs.com where you can find awesome work. Where you can list your open roles there for free for a limited time. Uh, guys, this week's episode reveals the science behind birth control 2.0, and I couldn't be more excited about this. Um, We're going to understand what's the landscape and what's next, and also why it's taken so long to build something better. Our guest is Dr. Elizabeth Russo, and she's taking on the huge task of all those things. And I couldn't be more excited to share her journey and her plan with you. Because look, family planning affects everybody. It even affects the planet. And we are on the cusp of doing so much better. This stuff is just exciting as hell. So um, I can't wait to share it with you. And as always, any questions or feedback, please shoot it to us at questions at importantnotimportant.com. Here we go. For avocado green brands, sustainability comes first. They craft their GOTS certified organic mattresses, pillows, and bedding with natural materials sourced from their organic farms in India in their own clean energy-powered facility in Los Angeles, where their team shares a singular purpose, to raise the bar for what it means to be a sustainable business. Avocado is climate-neutral certified for net zero emissions and donates 1% of all revenue to environmental nonprofits through its membership with 1% for the planet. Find out what it means to sleep organic at avocadomattress.com. Our guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Ruzzo, and together we're talking about uh, birth control and family planning and how it needs to be so much better. And because it's 2021, for better or worse, uh, we might have the tools to do that and the people who are best suited to do so. It's time for 2.0. Dr. Ruzzo, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and talk with you today about birth control. 
let's do this. That is uh, the first time someone has said that to me that I haven't gotten terrified. <laughs> um, uh, all right, uh, Elizabeth, tell us real quick who you are and what you do. So I am a PhD in human genetics, and I left academia to start a company called Aiden. And Aiden has created the first test that's designed to prevent birth control side effects. It sounds so simple. It's hard to come up with the one sentence that makes it sound simple. No, that's impressive. <laughs> I have no idea what we do, if, much less like put it into one sentence. So that's really great. Uh, awesome. Thank you for sharing that. So listen, we're going to get into more about like the why of of why to do it, though that seems obvious. But though maybe again, like we discussed previously, not to people who look like me with a beard. Uh, <laughs> but um, I do want to start with one important question. And it sounds like you've been cheating by listening to previous episodes. Instead of saying, tell us your life story, I would love to know, why do you feel like you're vital to the survival of the species, Elizabeth? I wasn't sure if you asked that question to everyone, so I don't have a prepared answer. <laughs> oh, I do. And it's much better if you don't have a prepared one because okay. the, the, our listeners can feel the sweat in the phone. <laughs> survival of the species is very ambitious. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. it's that I have... Uh, passion for using science to improve the way that uh, we conduct medicine. So, and on top of that, I have a passion for educating people about that. Okay. That sounds very legit. I still don't know how I'm going to answer this question someday. Um, I'm probably just going to turn the camera off and run away like I tried to earlier. Um, that's fantastic. Well, we're thankful for you uh, and thankful for your work and uh, excited to get into it. So here's why I wanted to have this conversation today. It's family planning. It, it affects everyone. It doesn't matter uh, what your sex is, what your gender is, uh, what your yep. role is. It, it affects you. It affects the planet and all these different things. But obviously, most importantly, it's about a woman's body and what does she choose to do with it and how does she feel after she chooses to do whatever she chooses to do with it. And a lot of times it's not great. There's trade-offs, of course, for any kind of medicine. I've um, you know, I, I, I feel like, should we make it through the next three years? We're going to look back and and look at things like chemotherapy and say like, look, that was our best option at the time, but holy shit. I mean, yeah. how barbaric was that? You know, right. it's kind of like when we used to cut sailors' legs off, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, we had medicine and, uh, you know, the difference between World War One and World War Two because of penicillin. So, you know, so thankful for the, the medicine that is there, but, uh, and there's a huge variety and methods and not just medicines of, of obviously family planning and birth control. But, you know, for, for example, the pill has been around since 1960, 1960. I think something like that. Yep. I think it's like a hundred million or something like that. Uh, women around the world use them. Um, again, this is, this is my internet research. So, so, uh, Elizabeth, please correct me everywhere. I'm wrong. I believe if you're in the 15 to 49 year old age range in the U.S. and using birth control, if you're not actually getting your tubes tied, you're using the pill, it seems to be uh, among the most prevalent there. Yeah, the pill is the most common, but there are okay. multiple kinds of what we focus on, which is anything that's considered highly effective forms of birth control. So that also includes mm -hmm. um, the patch, the ring, mm -hmm. the arm implant, and the IUD. Gotcha. Okay. All super duper helpful. Um, and obviously those things, I mean, the pill kickstarted the sexual revolution of the, of the 60s. Um, 
it's like you said, very effective. But again, all of these things, like many medicines, um, come with trade-offs, right? And frankly, if you're not the one taking uh, the pill, <laughs> you might not be so aware of those. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that clued me in, and I was why I was so excited to to stumble onto the work you guys are trying to do, is when when folks earlier this year were trying to understand the effectiveness and potential side effects of these new COVID vaccines, which again, disclaimer, like incredibly safe. Uh, we're yep. incredibly lucky to have these things, yep. right? Um, one very, very rare issue that is real, but is very, very real that came up was the potential for a blood clot. And obviously that is scary. I get it. It's real, of course. Yep. Again, very, very real. A bunch of women uh, chimed in to explain that the pill's chances of a clot were higher. And obviously that is differentiated uh, among many, many, many different humans, millions of humans, right? Uh, it's still pretty low. The side effects are no joke. And it does affect everybody differently. Our bodies and how we react to everything is so different. We're finding that with the vaccines too and with COVID, obviously, um, from clots to hormones and all that stuff. And that's that's genetics, uh, right? Um, yep. And that's why I want to dig in today to understand how you and your company, Aiden, are trying to help design something in a cooperative way, in an inclusive way that is more effective and more tolerable and more safe for more women. So. Yeah. yeah. And the just fun fact yeah. that J&J vaccine yeah. risk is 340 times lower than the risk from birth control that's used by millions and millions of women. Right. I mean, like children, basically. Like, yeah. Right. We, you've got like young teenagers up yes. to, to women as far as they know. I mean, it's it's wild. Um, the The... That's wow. That's what that's wild. Context yeah. always helpful. Yeah, always helpful. If 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 we've learned anything in the past year and a half, it's like context uh, is always helpful. Absolutely. I want to uh, personalize this a little bit. Um, uh, not on my end because I I I uh, am not the one using birth control as much as I've offered to get the snip snip many times. Different podcast. <laughs> so there's a two-part question I've become kind of fond of in the past year or so. Um, and the first part is, why do you have to do this? And the second part is, why does it have to be you? So uh, if you don't mind, Elizabeth, can you share your story a little bit with birth control? Because I feel like to work on something so specific and so prevalent among so many different people, it probably needs to come from from something uh, personal, uh, uh, yes. you know, an, an experience you've had with this sort of thing. Yeah. So I think my experience is, is not unique, but it was important to motivating me to want to work on this. So I think like many women, I was prescribed a birth control um, at an early age. And in fact, it was for not for pregnancy prevention, but for medicine. Like many women are the reason they're prescribed birth control. And it caused me to be severely depressed. And it wasn't until the second time I went on it that I was depressed to the point of considering suicide and went to my doctor and explained that I thought that the pill that I was on was to blame for feeling so terribly and was gaslit, was told that there was no way, there was no evidence that birth control wouldn't do that. So I trusted this medical professional and suffered through it for, I think, two more months, possibly three more months, and then went off of it and started feeling better. So it just became this 
kind of question in the back of my mind. I would talk to friends. I would ask them what their experiences were like. And I learned that, you know, not everyone had depression, but maybe they had a blood clot, a gallbladder removed, um, just you name it. The the range um, and diversity of side effects is crazy. And the flip side of that is some people felt better. They saw acne improvement, mood improvement, et cetera. And so it became clear that it was there was potential there for birth control to do good beyond even the freedom it offers from pregnancy prevention and family planning, um, but also that it has the potential to do badly if we're not matching people to one that makes sense. And uh, I guess before we get into the the stuff of why does it have to be you and 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 a further exploration of, of why you're doing this, and thank you for sharing that. I, I appreciate that. It's obviously very personal. For for those of us out here who uh, don't take or haven't taken birth control, whatever your reasons may be, uh, sex or gender, choice, whatever, could you just take a step back and lay out the landscape for us real quick? Just uh, let's, I guess, let's stick with uh, the U.S. Uh, right now. So most common options, the intended outcomes, or I guess how it's supposed to work, and then what are the most common side effects that we see among those so, so we can really understand the why of this. Yeah. So, I mean, the main lay of the land is that there are nearly 200 highly effective methods of birth control available in the U.S., yeah. So the majority of those are pills, different varieties of pills, but also the other highly effective ones I mentioned. So the patch, which goes on your mm-hmm. arm, the ring, mm-hmm. um, and then two that require um, being inserted for a longer period of time, the arm implant and the IUD. And there's also a shot um, that's available. So these are, you know, the interesting thing about birth control is that because of this, because of these 200 options, there are also there's also a layer of choice involved, right? Mm -hmm. So some people hate the idea of having something permanently implanted or at least temporarily implanted in their body. And some people hate the idea of having to remember to take a pill every day. Um, And then with that, there's pros and cons to different ones. So certain ones are better for helping also regulate your period or letting you skip your period altogether, um, things like that. And the most common side effects, I would say, are probably mood changes, acne, obviously depression within mood changes. And Mm -hmm. one of the most controversial ones, although it's technically only been associated with the single drug, is weight gain. Okay, that's that's super interesting. Okay, and now, again, this is very general, and I I know the entire point of the conversation is the variety of options and the variety of of people uh, taking them or not taking them um, or going through the gauntlet of trying all these different things like it seems like you did. But is there a way to generalize sort of like uh, which, gosh, where do I start? Sort of like, which, uh, is it by age usually uh, that we know so far? Is it by drug? Is there different things? If there's uh, anything general there, again, so people understand like, hey, when you're a teenager, you're more likely to have this problem or you're more likely to, more likely to take this or I'm just trying to understand it a little better. You know, I wish that there were really broad um, generalizations. I mean, this is sort of why we're doing what we're doing is recognizing that there's a couple specific places where we can help make an an impact as to what you choose that helps you avoid the negative side effects, right? So if you have genetic variants that predispose you to blood clot, we also know which— sets of birth control are more likely to cause blood clots, so we can help you avoid those. There are some tendencies for 
adolescents to be more predisposed to that depression piece um, in particular on, on certain types of birth control. I wonder if that's just because, and again, in case 124 episodes in, people aren't clear, I'm not a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly. But, you know, obviously when you're a teenager, like your hormones are all over the place and going crazy. So I imagine it's just a complicated mishmash in there, no matter what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, so part of what um, we're hoping to do at Aiden in general is also sort of bring endocrinology into the the big data techniques with which we approach genomics. So thinking about how we can measure somebody's hormones, not just at a snapshot in time and try to understand them, but instead measure them longitudinally at multiple time points throughout your life and also make these gigantic reference ranges that are used in the lab more specific based on what we do know about you. So based on your age, your weight, your ethnicity, and all these factors that we know control your natural endogenous hormone levels. So I guess that's all the answer to why I was struggling to ask the question is, is is there aren't really any because it's so specific and so varied, and that's the entire point of your work. Right, right. Perfect. <laughs> Got it. Check. Let's back up even further then. So, so then, now that we have that landscape, when did you get started on this work? And I guess, how is Aiden approaching it? Are you guys specifically working on one solution? Are you Are you doing sort of more general science uh, to start with, trying to accumulate data. What is the process been like to date and sort of how is it operating going forward? Yeah, so I alluded to this a little bit, but basically we're, we're starting where we can. So the hardest part here is that this is a completely understudied area, right? So you mentioned that the pill was invented in 1960 and there's been pretty small amount of technological innovation since then um, and definitely not the kind of attention we would want to see to things like how do we actually do precision medicine and make sure we're not just assuming that every birth control is going to work with for every person. And so we're starting with two of the most dangerous side effects. So that's risk for blood clot and risk for depression. Um, And we also have a number of um, triggers that are things like, um, you know, are you interested in using birth control to help treat your acne? Because there's a handful of them that are known to help with that. Or and also preference, as I mentioned. So do you are you interested in a longer term option or are you thinking about having children uh, sooner? Things like that. And we help basically from there create a tool that you can then use with a doctor, either yours or Aiden-provided telemedicine doctor, to help you have that contraceptive counseling appointment. And we're training our telemedicine providers to really understand all the nuances of, you have power in this, you have a choice. We've now laid out all of these options with the pros and cons in general and the pros and cons for you based on what we understand about your biology so that you can make the best decision for you and your reproductive planning. It all makes so much sense. <laughs> um, it's, you know, part of what I try to do here, and I find that where where we've been most effective is for myself, certainly, and certainly with situations like these, but also for other folks, this moment that we're in, which is not a moment, it's an era, right, in so many different ways, um, whether yeah. it's climate or pandemics or, or or personalized medicine, which has certainly had its ups and downs, right? You know, we started working on the genome how, how long ago, right? But the costs have come down and now we're using it and you've got 23 and me, and then it's, oh my God, 23. You know, it's all these different things. Yep. But a lot of it is teasing apart these systems and 
taking a page from my children who, who all they do is say why, which is wonderful. And I'm always happy to indulge their curiosity, but it works until I say like, fine, you can have the snack, get out of here. <laughs> but in this case, it's, you were saying one of the episodes you listened to of ours was the conversation uh, with, with Dr. Hasina Meridia and, and Errol Bush who were working on at Johns Hopkins. I think she's actually moved on now to maybe Yale or Brown, but they're working on for years why uh, young black men's uh, health outcomes after heart surgery are just drastically worse uh, than, than white men. Yeah. And there's so many inputs to a problem like that, right? And they're complicated and they're, uh, they're medical and they're sociological yeah. and they're anthropological and they're, they're all these different things, right? But if you're paying attention, it's also not too difficult to guess at what the, the, the biggest ones uh, might be. Um, you know, all you have to do is look at certain statistics and see, oh, well, 5% of doctors are black. That's it. And right. nurses are even fewer. And, right. and we all know how important nurses are. And that's the same thing in my conversation with a rep- uh, Representative Underwood uh, talking about uh, uh, maternal health for, for black women. Yeah. Um, you know, you're two to four times as likely to, to die in the year after childbirth if you're black. And in her home state, it's six times as likely. And so you look at these things and you go, to be clear, like two to four times is very bad. It's like atrocious. That, is, that needs to yeah. be fixable. Yeah. That is a system that was designed that way. When it's six times, you go, Wait a minute. What's what's happening here? You know, these are these are power systems that are that are undefeated, and so when I jot down my notes for a conversation with you, and you go, okay, if it's been around since the '60s, and we have 200 different options, and there's this huge variety of 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 uh, folks who who take these drugs for a huge variety of reasons, like you said, from acne to family planning uh, to controlling brutal periods, it's easy to ask the question: Why have these side effects been tolerated by by um, I guess you know basically by not overlooked, but it's somewhere between overlooked and tolerated by the medical profession and the pharmaceutical yeah. industry for so long. And it's also easy to understand the basic answer, which is just like, it's not women working on these things because they've generally not been allowed to. Um, so that's why I always yep. look at this pros and cons of its 2021 thing, which is like, why did it take so fucking long to get here? But at least now we can do genomic big data stuff. Yeah. So what has been the history of trying to progress these things? Have there been efforts that have failed? You know, I look at I have a cousin um, that's suffering from ALS, and it is like a lightning strike, as they say. We've learned so much more in the past 10 years. The ice bucket challenge went a long way. I also work a lot with pediatric cancer, which gets 4% of federal cancer funding. Mm-hmm. And you go, okay, is it a—so so what What acts of the people who have been working on the efforts that have been made, is it not enough money? Is it not enough work? Have there been efforts like the an, an ALS trial promising one flamed out today? You know, is it is it something like that? You know, where have there been successes and failures along the way to get you to where you are now? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think it's a combination of things. I think one clear example gets at what you were saying, which is like the level of tolerability. Um, so there were, there have been and continue to be efforts to create male birth controls. When there were early clinical trials for those, that clinical trials were literally canceled because men complained about, you guessed it, uh, acne, (laughs) weight gain, and depression. And so it's been a bit of a battle and the, you know, the responsibility has fallen on women because the price you pay is so great. And the freedom you get has literally changed our ability to become educated and participate in the workforce. 
Um, So that tolerance is just there. And in terms of technological innovations um, and why I think Aiden is possible now is is a number of things, including things like people understanding genetics, the ability for us to do home testing because of changes in the regulatory space, because of um, the ability to use a, a finger drop of blood to accurately measure a small number of hormones at one time, um, and things like that that are paving the way for our ability to do this, as well as just large-scale genomic studies that have been done, for example, in depression, which is how we're able to be reporting on that. We're using data that has nearly a million individuals. It's based on 800,000 individuals. So without those data, we wouldn't be able to uh, make the kind of progress that we are. And those efforts are continuing to grow, but not quickly enough, in my opinion, in um, diverse populations and specifically in diseases that uh, affect primarily women and girls. So that's a big part of Aiden's larger mission, which is to make scientific discovery more inclusive. A few things. One, you use the plural for data, which brings me infinite joy. <clears throat> Great. Uh, Glad two, to hear it. <laughs> yep, two, if nothing else. Uh, two, um, so <clears throat> you, it seems like you're actually able to, instead of, okay, we're starting from scratch, how do we sign folks up for, for, our, uh, for our clinical trials or whatever they may be, it seems like you're able to actually piggyback on some of this genomic uh, work that has been done so far. Can you talk a little bit how you uh, source those and, and find things that are applicable to uh, the work you're trying to do and then sort of how you tease those in? Yeah, I mean, so we are definitely standing on the shoulder of, shoulders of giants in many ways. There are some publicly available data sets that um, we can mine for developing a new technique that we're using called polygenic risk scores. You can basically think of this as, uh, rather than looking at a single site in the genome, you're looking at a multitude of sites in the genome and, and putting them all together to get the cumulative risk that somebody is exposed to. Um, And so we are going to continue to do that um, for more and more studies um, as data become available, as well as do our own ongoing research, which is part of a question you asked before that I think I failed to answer. We are definitely doing ongoing R&D and and hoping that people want to opt in because they believe in our mission and understand, you know, the larger picture of what what we're trying to do. Isn't there a big, is it the NIH that's doing a big study? genomic study that's trying, endeavoring to be more inclusive than we've been to all, date. I, all for us, I believe it's called. All for us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they are. And that's great. Um, and there's a number of other efforts, but we are very far behind. Um, and also I have, I'm not an expert in that, but from what I have looked at, I'm almost worried it's too broad to to fully move the needle when you have a specific use case. Right. So let's say I'm interested in fibroids or PCOS. You really need to be able to do deep phenotyping to make sure that you have someone who has or has not been diagnosed with that disease to be able to conduct um, the study that you want. So it's great that they're working on um, just a broadcast net to diversify um, the kinds of samples they're studying. But we also need to be sure that we as a scientific community are continuing to do really pointed um, research in a way that is um, as inclusive as possible. So for your own research, you know, there's there's been this, it could be a total, you know, false flag, but, you know, we're seeing things like um, uh, the Apple Watch being started to use uh, with their research kit stuff to 
enable not everything by any stretch, but certain trials that would otherwise have been very limited uh, geographically and demographically, uh, very expensive to run. Uh, trials are so hard historically to actually fill. Um, they're so expensive. Uh, in certain cases for that to walk, like the, uh, you know, what they've done with their heart stuff, uh, you know, working with a few places and what they've done with, uh, I think, they've uh, how they built their walking tool. Um, obviously, I imagine that is not the type of thing you can you can work with. But how are you guys when you look at, okay, we're going to build our own research here because some of these things might be too broad. We need to look at specific things. Um, but what is the process there for, for building that as as a startup? It's a great question and one that keeps me up at night. I mean, I think that... <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> a big part of it, um, and part of why I left academia to do this, is I actually felt like I could help more people more quickly um, mm. in a startup setting. But part of what you have to do and the challenge that you're up against when you're not behind, you know, in my normal setting, which is an academic setting, where people, I think, inherently have a little bit more trust and probably rightly so, is, is work on building that trust. So work on practicing what we preach, on um, being inclusive in our own actions um, as a team, as a brand, and educating and adding value for anyone, even if they don't ever spend a dime or, you know, want to work with us in any way. So I think in order to do that, it's really just, you know, there's no quick solution here. You have to be transparent, build trust, get the word out, have people opt in to research. I am um, feel optimistic based on some of the numbers I've heard from 23andMe about having, I think, almost 80% of people opt in to research, which is fantastic because wow. if you understand and believe that there's a bigger mission there, you're willing to help. Um, and that's just critical. It's interesting when you look at um, all of us and then 23andMe, um, and let's leave you guys and, and the huge variety of other folks trying to do sort of this, I, I don't want to just grossly label it biotech, but you know, you get yeah. the idea. And um, <clears throat> I wonder if you can speak a little to the folks who are like, yeah, I'm not giving my genomic stuff to the government or I'm not giving it to a private company. And it's hard because I empathize with both of those pros and cons. Yeah. Um, at the same time, this stuff is so hard. And so, at, look, sequencing the genome has come down, I mean, uh, as about as much as solar panels and batteries, right? Yeah. It's incredible what we are starting to be able to do. Yeah. But it still costs so much. And it's yeah. so hard to do. And to, to I, I mean, I can't imagine, like you said, the paperwork. It's just got to be <laughs> yeah. un ungodly. Like, no thank I run a podcast and I've got <laughs> enough shit. Like, you're, like, you're trying to make yeah. medicine. No thank you. Uh so I wonder if you can speak a little to those, uh, let's let's gently call them hesitancies among folks, um, because it is interestingly, I mean, I think it's probably a human condition at times, uh, yeah. th that trust that you were talking about. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, we, we've had on, we had on a couple of women a couple of years ago, three, two years, I, time means nothing anymore, um, that work uh, with the NA, NIH um and, you know, one of the things that was so fascinating to me, I'm, I'm familiar with the NIH. I, I lived over there for a little while. I benefited from it for like zero dollars. But it's interesting that, uh, you know, data collection there is actually from birth opt out. Yeah. Which is, which, yeah. which 
I was just like, holy shit, I can't imagine again now what one could be able to start to do yeah. with that sort of thing. Where that here, like if you imagine, can you imagine trying to turn that spigot on here? Like, good luck. But so I wonder anyways, could you could you speak a little bit to how folks, I think, feel with that in an era where we do need more data to do these sort of sort of things? Yeah. Yeah. I think that people obviously have the should own their data and decide what they do with their data. And I think we have a great responsibility to protect those data, and we take that very seriously. We are not planning on, you know, going around and selling individual data. The government has done some things to try to protect people's data from insurance discrimination and things like that, obviously with Mm -hmm. GINA, which is um, a massively important step. Um, But it's also important to recognize that opting in, you know, the more samples we have, the more you're contributing to making a big impact that increases our potential to do discovery and to do good. And so, like I said, that's why I think building this trust is really important because I get it. If you don't trust us, if you don't see a scientist-run, female-led company working on trying to do R&D for women's health um, as a place you want to be part of the community and share your data, um, you know, that that's on you. But hopefully we can convince you that we are trying to do good. And the way we convince you is by continuing to protect your data and actually make discoveries that are medically actionable and have a large impact. And I imagine that's um, where you become effective, right? Is once you're able to start to have a little bit of an impact. So you can say, I fully understand your fears and your concerns. I will both answer those, but also show you this is not only what we're trying to do, but this is what we've been able to do so far with the help of the folks that have decided to opt in and share that with us who have trusted us so far. So where do you feel like you're going to be able to start to see some of the fruits of your labor. And obviously I know it's very early and this thing is all incredibly hard. I mean, I I feel like one of the things about these uh, mRNA vaccines, um, (laughs) not to, not to denigrate the folks that, you know, Johnson Johnson and and all these that, that, that worked on uh, the, the relatively more traditional versions, but you know, (laughs) And and the mRNA vaccines didn't come out of nowhere. You know, Karen Carrico worked on these. She tried yep. to solve the inflammation problem for 20 years. You know, yep. her story is just incredible. It didn't come out of nowhere. However, we were told like 18 months minimum and and good luck if it's that. And then we got them and everyone's like, great. Oh, they're not good enough. It's only 94%. I just want to be like, motherfucker, do you understand <laughs> how hard this is? So I don't want to put you on the spot and be like, what's the deal, lady? Yeah. But I'm curious where you feel like you're going to be able to go like, we're doing it and we can show people like, look, this is what you can help with. And that's where I feel like uh, they always get me with the pediatric cancer thing. One of the organizations, two of the organizations I love is, um, is uh, Cycle for Survival, which works on rare cancers and uh, Alex's Lemonade Stand, which is pediatric cancers, which mm. is like literally my biggest problem in the world. It's just like, why? Yeah. Um, but, you know, they'll bring out a scientist who works on rare pediatric cancers and they'll show you pictures 
of the child they saved because of the research they did. And you're like, well, then you can have all my fucking money. Like, you can have, what, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Because they're like, this is what, literally what it went to. We don't get much. And this is what I can do with it. Because this is a person who is like you said, I'm going to, I'm going to spend my life on this. Yeah. But at some point they do for themselves and their career and their profession need to show like, this is where we're at least starting to make progress or overcome some obstacles. So what does that look like for Aiden and for you? Yeah. I mean, I think the the biggest thing is that we are already doing more than the current standard of care, right? So the current standard of care is essentially little more than trial and error, right? Doctors look at this uh, table put together from the CDC that helps doctors avoid um, the most dangerous contraindications. Um, like if you're a smoker over 35, that inc- increases your risk for blood clot, things like that. Um, But we're already providing more help in the process of prescribing than exists before. And in terms of where I think we're going to make an impact with the data, um, we already have some preliminary kind of dry lab data looking at the associations between different birth controls and the side effects that they cause. And so I think pretty quickly we'll be able to layer on that biological information to increase the specificity of how we're doing these offerings. Wow, that's exciting. That's got to be awesome. I mean, it takes me like a week to put together a podcast. I can't imagine how you're already making progress on this stuff. That's constantly impressive. That's really exciting. So what are what are some of the obstacles you folks, here's what I'm trying to do. We always work towards these action steps that folks can take, right? Because I, I think I alluded to in our previous conversation um, offline, you know, we've got policymakers and academics and folks who fled academia like you rightfully in some, yep. time, in some places <laughs> and and investors and founders and, and, and all these different things. Um, uh, but We've also got a lot of those who are looking to apply themselves somewhere else. Uh, maybe they founded something else or invested in something and they're going, boy, I should really do infectious disease because we've been in our living rooms for a year mm-hmm. or climate or whatever it might be or yeah. something like this, you know? So what I want to do is paint a picture for them, not just like, hey, look, this is this awesome person working on an important thing, but also, you know, let's not cut corners. Like, it's fucking hard. Yeah. So what are some of the obstacles since you started talking to friends and hearing about their your own situation, uh, you know, disagreements with the doctors and going on your own journey and friends with clots and all this to starting Aiden, to starting to work on these things. What are some of the obstacles you've overcome so far? And what are you guys dealing with that you can sort of reveal uh, right now um, that are sort of your hardest, hardest nuts to crack? Yeah. I mean, I think some of the obstacles we, we've we overcome is really just what is that first version of the test that we can offer that adds value right now um, and that communicates fairly what the findings are. So how do we talk to someone who doesn't understand necessarily genetic risk um, about genetic risk? And how do we simultaneously, you know, generate this report that is readable by not just the medical providers who are training to give these contraceptive counseling appointments, um, but also someone with zero training in biology to understand what it means, why it matters, um, and how it can help them have all the information they need to make a choice that makes sense for them. So I think we've done a pretty amazing job at that. I'm really proud of of where we've landed and and how we're rolling out this first version of the birth control test. Um, and I think 
obstacles we are looking at now are a lot of what I've talked about, about um, building trust. Um, one of the interesting things that I think comes from working on a product that a that can affect uh, women for three, women take birth control for 30 years on average. So for how do you um, operate as a brand that appeals to three decades of women simultaneously? Um, so it's kind of a branding and messaging problem. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's a lot. And, um, you know, my adjacent experiences, obviously, uh, there's an N of one, but, you know, just w- again, without too much information, you know, my wife's uh, situation post having children is entirely different. So it's not like this. Well, I imagine for for some women who, who choose or cannot have children for whatever reason, um, who take it for 30 years straight, it's off and on for a lot of folks. Right. Too. And your yep. body completely changes yep. in so exactly. many ways. Exactly. So is that something where you envision someone has to take a new test to to see at what, what has changed and what hasn't? How, how, how does that work? Yeah. So that's part of why I think this longitudinal repeat hormone measurement piece is so important. So um, with the exception of a, a few things, your DNA is your DNA. And so mm-hmm. we can measure that piece once. Um, but I would recommend that people measure their hormones um, again repeatedly. Um, and so there are kind of those um, moments in life, you know, maybe the first time you're going on birth control or after having a baby or as you're starting to experience perimenopause where you can imagine needing a different birth control um, because your body is different and or your goals are just different. Why haven't, and again, this might be the most logical answer, <laughs> Why haven't uh, the big pharmaceutical companies done this work yet? Or have they tried? Or have they? is it just a bunch of dudes? So I don't know that I have an answer. My hypothesis is simply that um, birth control is highly effective, the ones that are out there, right? So if the primary indication is, prevent babies. Any drug you've made is preventing babies. Now, there are some exceptions to that, and we can talk about that also. But if that's the goal, then that's your, that is your goal. Um, And so you make a new, that's your threshold. And so you make a new one so that you can brand it so that you can charge more. And then there's generics that come after that. And then you rinse and repeat when the, when the patent runs out on the brand. But you're making it for millions of people. Right. It's a very broad, blunt tool. Yeah. And because people are still using it, you know, and and let's be fair, there are plenty of other drugs that also have side effects. Um, But this one is, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. But this one is one that just is so, um, so widely used and for so many years by so many people for so many different reasons that it just doesn't make sense to not take a more scientific approach to how we're doing the, the selection. Why do you have to do this? I literally got to a point where I felt like if I don't do this, I will regret it for the rest of my life. Like it was just this light bulb moment of realizing that I personally had had this problem um, and also that I was in a unique position with my decades of experience in genetics, plus this idea of combining it with hormone levels that... um, just felt like if I didn't do it, there wasn't going to be anyone who did it. And it felt like it became my 
responsibility to try. What would you be doing if you weren't doing this? I would be a professor somewhere <laughs> in genetics. So still Could doing cool stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Tra- like it was not an easy decision for me. You know, I was finding autism genes, epilepsy genes. It was very rewarding and important work. Um, but I just felt this call to make Aiden and and have this massive, massive vision that um, I felt I could get to quicker. You know, I don't know if you saw the news this week. Uh, there's a woman named Sarah Blakely, and she started a little company called Spanx, oh, which you yes. might have heard about. Yes. <laughs> I, I uh, know her friend of a friend. She's uh, as incredible as one would hope. Um, and she, you know, a lot of folks have heard the story, was selling fax machines, uh, had a pair of pants. She was frustrated. She couldn't wear it, took it to the factory, factory filled with men's. No one would make it. Yada, yada. <laughs> She's a billionaire like three times over. She sold it this week. Oh, amazing. And she, you know, just looked around and said like, I, like, I, one, look at this enormous market. It, it, I mean, you're your right founder or investors are always like, what's your market? And you're like half of the population <laughs> yeah. of planet earth. <laughs> right. Like next fucking question. <laughs> and by the way, hers was similar. Yeah. You know, I, I can imagine and, and you feel free to shoot me down uh, where, wherever and anywhere I'm wrong. Cause that's all, all my entire day. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's a moment where you look around when that is your end, right? 51% of the planet. Um, is either uh, in need of family planning at some point of their life, yep. for a large period of their life, for a huge variety of reasons, or women don't feel comfortable comfortable in their bodies and they need an undergarment that works for them that's not made in a man factory that, that they can hide but also be proud of and maybe it can be sexy, all these different things. I imagine that when you then go tell your friends, because it's hard to share your secret for the first time, right? Hey, this I think this is the thing I'm going to do. Yep. I imagine the reception was like, oh my God, yes. But was it something different? It was, it was mostly yes. It was mostly, oh my gosh, yes. And it was a lot of like, well, why hasn't somebody done this before? And I think one of the reasons I was surprised by kind of the, reception to leaving academia is because friends who were not in academia were so incredibly generous with like their introductions to other people mm-hmm. being like so supportive like just immediately like yeah you should do this and you know who you should talk to this person and it was just not that academia is not networky and whatever but everyone's just like there's so much less like so many fewer pieces of the pie that people can get, you know? That Academia it, is a tough place. It's a tough place. And so it was like very refreshing to have so much support as I was exploring what it would even look like to run a for-profit company. To help 4 billion women. Right. Small cookies. Yeah. Small cookies. <laughs> if you ever want to write a newsletter, let me tell you, it's tough nuts. Um... <laughs> I believe it. That's awesome. So listen, again, the point was there's a lot of folks, either they want to move careers, they're starting the careers, they're young, they're going on birth control for the first time or the fifth time, whatever it might be. They're like, do I get a patch? Do I put something inside of me? Am I going to remember to take this fucking pill or the sugar version? I mean, yeah. 
my biggest question is always folks going like, what can I do? And my answer is always to start at least in one-on-one conversations. It's like, all right, Elizabeth, well, what can you do? You know, because you're so much more likely to keep do to start doing something, to keep doing something and to be effective if we're meeting you where you are, something you already love, you're already into or skills you already have or some combination of those things. Right. Yep. So we're going to go down two tracks before I get you out of here. Okay. The first one is for someone like you, you, when did you leave academia? How long ago? It's been almost two years. Okay. Two, you said three? Almost two, I think. Almost two. Yeah. Left right before 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Perfect timing. Yeah. Um, you, three, four years ago, um, how would you advise someone who was coming up looking at a problem like this that was so personal to them and so meaningful to so many people, even if those people had understandably kind of just accepted the status quo and the trade-offs? How would you advise them to pursue something like this? I would say start talking to people who know more than you about everything that touches what you're trying to do. So go, you know, in my case, it was go interview the people prescribing birth control, make sure I'm not just missing some secret key Mm -hmm. that they have Mm -hmm. to doing this, right? Mm -hmm. Go talk to more people and make sure you're sure it wasn't just you who was miserable on birth control. Sure. Talk to some people who, who are happy that they found one that worked, right? And then on the, the other side, if you're thinking about switching industries completely, talk to people who have run a company before, who have built it from the ground up, who understand what a consumer business would mean in terms of brand, who can think about, you know, how you would interface with regulatory entities, thinking about working with doctors and hospitals and people who have built a team and a culture before and just be in kind of this data collection mode and let yourself take it all in and like dream about all the possibilities. And then at the end of the day, like trust your gut because you're going to get different advice from everyone. That's awesome. That's super helpful. Information gathering. Yeah. Always helpful. Always helpful. Uh, What's the... (laughs) What is that from? The don't jump to conclusions, Matt? Oh, God. What was that from? I don't know. Um, all right. So that's super helpful and, and really thoughtful. And you're so still so close to that decision and that process. I think that's, that's, that's great. Yeah. The second track is someone's listening to this conversation. Again, 50-whatever percent of planet Earth. Yep. And says, this sounds like this might be for me. How do, where do they go from the podcast? To, yeah. to participating in this, if yeah. they can. I would encourage them to go to our website, aden.com, A-D-Y-N, and join our early access program. We actually have a referral rewards program. So basically help us spread our mission and you can get free hormone tests, uh, a full free birth control test, and yeah, spread the word so that we can get more people um, participating and, and on the right birth control. And the other thing is just help us destigmatize it. Like, 
Tell your own birth control odyssey, as we're talking about. Tell your friends, tell your family, talk about your side effects, talk about them with your doctor. If your doctor ignores you, try to find a new doctor if you have those resources. Talk about how you found a birth control that worked for you if you did, if you were one of the lucky ones who already found a good one. We also are collecting these birth control odysseys or stories on our website, forward slash your story, if you want to share it. We are using these to also help drive our R&D and where we're, where we're focusing on kind of the biggest pain points. I will tell you right now, no two stories are identical. Um, and I continue to be amazed by what people have experienced. That's awesome. So what is that? So they sign up for the early access list. You, you described it. Um, they put in their e- email, beep, boop, beep, boop, hit return. What happens next? So then they will, um, I think they verify their email and then they can um, send their unique referral code to their friends who then if they okay. sign up and verify their email, that counts as a referral. If you okay. get, uh, if you sign up for early access at all, you get free shipping. If you get um, one, or maybe that's Free shipping referral. on what? Uh, on the actual birth control test once you buy it. And then if you have one successful referral, you get either $50 off your kit when you buy it or or a free hormone test. If you get three friends, you get both $50 off and a free hormone test. And if you have five friends, you get the full birth control test for free. Okay. So they ship you, you ship them the test. Mm -hmm. They take the test. They send it back to you. And what happens after that? So you will get the test in the mail and you take a saliva sample in a tube and you prick your finger and drop it onto an absorbent card. That's for the hormone levels. We generate your report that you'll view in your, you know, secure HIPAA compliant custom portal. And at that same time, you're given the opportunity to schedule a telemedicine visit with one of our providers. Um, And so this is a 25-minute visit, which is pretty long. The average contraceptive counseling appointment in the U.S. is 13 minutes. And these people are specifically trained in how to not just read the reports, but but listen to you and help you prioritize what you want. And if you're um, interested in getting a prescription by mail, we can also help you do that. But if you're getting, you know, the arm implant or the IUD, you can go to your doctor to do that. And we can help with a referral there as well. Okay. So is it a brand new, is it a selection of brand new medicines are being offered or is it better matching to ex- to what is out there? Better matching to what is out there. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. Among those 200-ish um, options. Among the 200-ish options. So exactly. Fun. Yep. Right. Yep. That's that's how many items my children would like me to put on the dinner table at night is 200 <laughs> options. And I'm like, I've made four things that you ate yesterday. How many, it's how impossible. many of them are sauces? I mean, so many of them are sa- they're sauces, but then they're just like, I don't like ketchup. I'm like, you you fucking had it for lunch. I know you like it. You're lying to me. It's a whole thing. Anyways, um, fascinating, fascinating. And then are you following up on that journey with them? Hey, how is it going? Did this matching work out for you? What are the side effects you're having? Because I imagine there's still some trial and error. Exactly. Yeah. So then we really partner with you to make sure that you're happy on your new one. And if not, we are going to make sure we get you there. So and like we you and I just talked about, or there's a life change that's going to happen. You go off of the one you did. We helped you find that you liked so you could get pregnant. And then you're thinking about which one to go on next. And uh, we'll be there there for you then, too. 
And again, I'm imagining that that these just very large pharmaceutical companies do have like some of this data and have done some of the work. But I, I you start to imagine the the questions that maybe weren't asked before because we just didn't have these data options to to collect them or correlate them, um, much less causation to say things like, it turns out this is how most, again, this is an incredible gener generalization that's not going to apply, but like this is, this is indicative of how most bodies change after a first pregnancy or something like that. You know, like these things that can paint a picture that we've just never really understood and making babies this way for 200,000 years, you know? <laughs> right, it just, exactly. It just seems like you, you, you may be on the cusp to at least like helping people to just, if it doesn't answer their own question, to paint a better picture of, of this is what's happening with what's going on inside of you. Exactly. I think that people, there is increasing evidence that people you know, quantified selfers, the Apple Watch, like people want this information about their body. Um, and I think that women in particular do, you know, 80% of healthcare spending in a household. So I think they're, they are interested in, in getting that data. They also experience medical gaslighting at a higher rate. I think there's a ton of reasons why you would want to take some power back in, in how you're thinking about your health. Absolutely. I mean, that was one of the most indicative and infuriating things about having the conversation with uh, Representative Underwood about um, maternal health outcomes is, you know, the incredibly personal and powerful stories that both Serena Williams and, and Beyonce shared about their uh, Ooh, yeah. about their birthing stories and how they were both almost dead um, yeah. because doctors just didn't listen to them. And you're like, ignore the fame, put that aside. Yeah. Uh, ignore how strong-willed these women are in the shape that they're in. Put that yep. aside. Yep. Two of the wealthier people on the planet, and it didn't fucking matter. And yet, that's and so that's for them. Forget uh, norm, like normal, uh, you know, people who identify as women. Forget uh, you know, marginalized. You know, you go down the list and go like, okay, but they're eighty percent of healthcare spending. Like, how is that not more? How how are we not doing everything we can to put more power in their hands? To right. at least feel more comfortable. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, last couple questions we ask everybody, then you're out of here. Um, Elizabeth, first time in your life you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful. And that could be little you. It could be with a crew, little gang, uh, the, the Russo gang. I don't know. <laughs> On the playground, in academia, whatever it might have been. That moment where you're like, oh, shit, I've got the power. I think it was my f second technician job. The first one was um, back when I thought I wanted to save the planet. It was a ecology lab. The second one was a human genetics lab. Yeah. And we worked on a rare neurological disorder. And it was a known gene. We already, like it had existed. My lab discovered it before I was there. But we had a patient call and just go off about what it meant, the impact that it had on their life to have a diagnosis. Basically, it was HNA. It was called hereditary neuralgic amyotrophy. You had sharpshooting pains down your arm. And this person just said, like, I basically felt crazy. Like, having this genetic diagnosis means I can now, I feel like relief. Like, I know what it is. I don't feel like it's my fault. 
like all of these things. It was so impactful to just realize like, oh, what we're doing makes a real, real impact on people's lives. It's that one line, thank you for sharing that, where you said, where the person said, it's not my fault. You know, this is just like you said, your DNA is what your DNA is. Like this is just the program comes from, you know, the, the, (laughs) your embryo is going to be what it's going to be. Exactly. And even, even parents, I think, even parents, I think, feel that way to some extent, right? Like if they were, let's say, a carrier who passed it on to their kid, like they had no way of knowing that, you know, it's not their fault. It's amazing how far that testing has come. We did a ton of uh, of IVF um, to get to where we got. Um, Yeah. Might keep this in, might not. But anyways, how that's come in the seven years since the last time we did it, you know, they don't even prick the embryo anymore. It's a blood test. Yeah. And that's, that's crazy. And yep. it's also Free just so DNA. much more helpful. I mean, yeah. oh my God, what, yeah. a, what a change, what a change. It's amazing. Um, all right. Uh, who is someone in your life that's impacted your work in the past six months? Ooh. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is a cop-out, but it's honestly true. Is just my team. Like, right. yeah, it's been incredible. I feel like I am inspired by them, motivated by them. I feel like it's, I, half the time I feel like I work for them. Like, what can I do to make you keep doing the amazing path that you're on? Like, how can I sure. help you with that? Yeah. But that, that's the best sign of a leader, right? Is hiring people who are just better and smarter than you and just be going like, what do I, what do you need from me? Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Okay. World is uh, on fire. I mean, it was yesterday. I don't know. Inside, outside, everything's crazy. What do you do to shut it off? What's your self-care? What's your, uh, like, exercise, walk in the woods, Mario Kart? Who can know? It's a mix between uh, walks outside, yoga, and Mm. I have a Peloton, which is really good when I'm, like, especially feeling anxious because just leave it all, leave it all there. Who's your instructor? Cody. Oh, yeah, he's good. He's good. He's really good. He's yeah. really good. When I'm in a more fun <laughs> attitude, he's really good. Yeah. Uh, Alex Tucson is my more usual, just like tough love. Like, he's just like, like just get on too. the fucking bike. Let's go. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. Great. It's great. Yep. Great. We'll talk about that later. Um, last one. What is a book uh, in all the time you have in your spare time that you've read this year that has opened your mind to something you hadn't considered before or changed your thinking in some way? We've got a whole list on bookshop. Throw it out to everybody. Oh, wow. A book mm-hmm. that's changed my thinking. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I have a good one. I read one about females as mosaics, which is really on brand about um, how we, you know, women have two X chromosomes and they inactivate one copy, but they don't do it in the same, the same one in all the cells in their bodies. So, yeah, that was a fun one. Genetics is wild. It's really wild. <laughs> That's so cool. All right. We're going to get you out of here. Where can our listeners follow you online and then uh, spell out the website for us? All that jazz. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I am, am trying to learn how to be cool on Twitter. So you could follow me um, at Sequin Lab Coat. And nice. Yes. That's a good one. We've got a collection of some pretty good ones. <laughs> We've got a guy who was working on evolutionary biology um, named Brandon Abunya, and his is Big Data Kane, like Big Daddy Kane, the rapper. <laughs> so sequin, la- sequin Lab Coat, is that sequin it? Sequin Lab that's Coat. That's up there. Oh, yeah. That's good. Okay. okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find him too. Um, yeah. And then all of Aiden's social is at Aiden Health. And our website is just Aiden, A-D-Y-N.com. 
Okay. Awesome. Um, Dr. Ruzo, thank you. Thank you. For your time and everything you're trying to do. It's, uh, you said in your first job, uh, your first technician role, you thought you wanted to change the world. And we didn't even get into the fact that, of course, this is about uh, a a woman's choice and what they do with their body and feeling comfortable. But like we said, uh, you know, draw down, um, you know, for what it's worth. and, and, And they've done an excellent job at one point. Family planning and educating girls were number five and six on the things we can do to reduce emissions. And you are doing that. Amazing. Okay, it's good. Awesome. Then it's back. I'm, I haven't Great. totally given up on my aspirations of helping the climate. <laughs> Checking all the boxes. Look at you. Done and done. Easy day. Amazing. Um, thank you so much. Please <laughs> uh, keep it up and we'll check in and see how your journey's going. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Quinn. Thanks to our incredible guest today, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. (laughs) And you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jam and music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks.